My name's Nicole Aberdy, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the Books, Books, Books Sydney Law School podcast series, in which I'll be interviewing a wide range of Sydney Law School academics about their latest books and work. We'll be covering many different fields, including criminal law, international humanitarian law, competition law, and constitutional law. I hope that you enjoy listening to these conversations as much as I have enjoyed having them. Thank you for listening. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabody.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to today's episode five. Today I'll be speaking to Professor Yane Svetiev about his book, Experimentalist Competition Law and the Regulation of Markets, which was published by Hart Publishing in June 2022 as volume 27 of their series, The Hart Studies in Competition Law. Before we start, I'd like to introduce Professor Yane Svetiev to those of you who are not familiar with him. He joined the University of Sydney Law School in 2018, having held faculty appointments at Bocconi University in Milan, the European University Institute in Florence, and at Brooklyn Law School in New York. He's also been a litigation associate at Kravitz, Swain and Moore LLP in New York, and was judicial associate to the Honour Honourable Michael Kirby at the High Court of Australia. His research focuses on the intersection between private law and transnational market regulation, and his research interests include contract law, competition law, sectoral regulation, financial supervision, and EU law and government. Yane, welcome to the Books, 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 Sydney Uni Law School podcast. Thank you very much, Nicole, for having me. Now, the main argument in your book is that the EU competition law is evolving into an experimentalist tool of market regulation. I'd like to just unpack in particular that concept for those who aren't familiar with it, of what exactly is experimentalist governance? What are some of its key features? Okay, uh, so that's a, a good place to start because it's not necessarily kind of, you know, an everyday, uh, you know, concept. Uh, so, um, you know, the best way to understand what experimentalist governance as it relates to competition law is, uh, is to kind of first think about what it is not. Okay, so uh, usually when we think about competition law uh, in Australia, as in many other countries, uh, uh, and this goes back uh, to the origins of competition law, which many people consider to be the, Sherman, the U.S. Sherman Act in 1890, uh, the idea has always been that you develop some rules that identify what conduct is anti-competitive, like creating cartels with your competitors where you kind of agree on prices and don't compete on prices, uh, or you identify which types of conduct are likely to lead to monopolization of markets. So you list uh, these types of conduct uh, and then you say this is prohibited, 
Um, and uh, as a result of that, companies know what they're allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do. Okay. Uh, and so it's a it's a legal conception of competition law. It's an enforcement conception. We give you the rules. You basically follow the rules. And if you follow, if you don't follow the rules, uh, you will end up being, um, um, you know, subject to a, a court finding of a violation and some kind of a penalty or a fine or. A... And so this has been uh, the kind of standard conception of competition law in most jurisdictions for a long period of time and the aim has been to elaborate rules sometimes with quite a bit of specificity that would allow us to know as enforcers or as companies what falls on the right side and what falls on the wrong side of the uh, of a, of a, of, a, of the law and if you look at the Australian competition statute, it's probably the one that attempts to do this with the greatest amount of detail and specificity. So those listeners who might have had the pleasure or otherwise to work uh, with the Competition and Consumer Act, uh, they will find that there are sections that are extremely long. They have a lot of text, a lot of subsections, paragraphs, in which the our legislator has tried with an enormous amount of specificity to try to provide notice about what's legal and what's illegal so that companies know what they're supposed to be doing and what they're not supposed to be doing. Um, now, in the book, I argue that actually this conception of competition law as a kind of variant of crime started to become untenable, you know, somewhere in the 70s and 80s of the last century, where, you know, I mean, some some of these proponents were kind of, you know, more ideologues of free markets, others were economists, but they were pointing out that a lot of conduct that kind of had been treated with suspicion, okay, uh, sometimes actually has good justifications. It leads to efficient outcomes in markets. Uh, so it does look like it's restricting the freedom of uh, other firms in their actions in the market, but it does so with for reasons that are not necessarily suspicious and for reasons that don't necessarily reflect uh you know and uh and uh, um an intention or an objective to increase market power uh, but sometimes even to just improve the way in which uh, goods and services are delivered uh, to consumers um and so the argument in the book is that you know most market conduct these days uh, has ambiguous consequences. You can't really tell in advance whether it's good or bad for consumers or for other objectives that we might have uh, in competition law. And so that means that... It and when you say very... good or bad, you mean competitive or anti-competitive? Exactly. So, you know, I mean, there are various ways that you can discern what's good or bad from market rivalry. A very narrow way is to, to look at prices, so whether prices for consumers are going up or down. So one form of a lot of forms of anti-competitive conduct like cartels or uh, monopolization 
they will have the effect that the firms will have the ability to raise prices for consumers. Uh, and that is a bad thing, right? We expect that companies compete with each other uh, in order to deliver uh, cheaper products uh, to consumers. So one way to say our markets working well or not working well is to say our prices for consumers going down or going up. Uh, any conduct that increases prices, well, that probably means that, uh, you know, there is an exercise of market power of some sort, and we don't like that kind of conduct. But it doesn't have to be just about prices. So, you know, it can also be about quality. So one way that you can restrict competition is to come into an agreement with your rivals that, you know, you don't improve quality very much. Also, monopolists typically don't have a lot of incentive to improve the uh, the quality of their products because, you know, they're the only seller in the market. Uh, so, you know, another way to distinguish good or bad uh, market conduct is to say is quality of products uh, improving uh, or not. One of the definitions that I saw of experimentalism is learning through implementation as the basis for recursive remedial adjustment and rulemaking. So I just would like you if you could, for you to unpack that concept and tell us, particularly in the context of EU competition law, what is an experimentalist approach? What does that mean? Okay, so uh, I mean, you know, so one one way to uh, to to think about it is to think about kind of you know specific uh, conduct uh, that might be uh, you know um, that might be attacked by uh, competition law. Uh, and so one of the examples uh, in the book uh, that I discuss um, and uh, that's of interest, that has been of interest in the EU, but not only in the EU. So uh, the ACCC is concerned about that kind of conduct also in the Australian uh, setting uh, is, uh, you know, this idea of of self-preferencing. Um, and so the 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 European case uh, related to uh, Google. Uh, it's uh, and uh, you know, as you know, Google basically has the predominant uh, search engine. Uh, and uh, you know, I'll to 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 put it quite simply, the European Commission had uh, alleged that uh, uh, you know, Google in the presentation of its results. So when you do a search for something, uh, especially if you seem to be looking for. Uh, a product to buy something uh, and you know you're using google in order to do a search to buy a product uh, the uh, commission was alleging uh, that uh, google had been preferencing its own shopping service uh, at the expense of other uh, pre-existing websites uh, that had been offering uh, you know the possibility for consumers to compare uh, products uh, and to uh, um, to be able to uh, basically uh, shop online, uh, and so the idea here was that Google, as the predominant uh, provider of search that most consumers turn to, uh, was uh, you know preferencing its own uh, uh, service for uh, uh, for shopping at the expense of other websites that had pre-existed. Uh, and uh, the question was whether this amounted to a violation of competition law or not. Okay, so it seems to be harming rivals. Okay, uh, 
But in competition law, we say, well, we're not so interested in other firms. What we're really interested in is whether there are there is any harm to the final users, to the consumers. So it might be that some conduct ends up harming firms. Um, you know, that uh, is just the nature of competitive rivalry in a market. Uh, you know, somebody prevails and the rivals end up being kind of harmed by that. Uh, but the question here is, is there some kind of a use of Google's market power in its search uh, um, uh, functionality uh, in order to, in some way, extend its market power to the shopping functionality? Um, and, you know, when you, I mean, this case, had this problem had originally been ad addressed by the Federal Trade Commission in the United States. And, you know, they couldn't figure out whether there had been some kind of preferencing or not in the first place. Uh, when the commission picked up the case, you will notice that, uh, you know, it was very hard for them to figure out whether or not this type of preferencing was having any effects in the market. It seemed to be diverting some traffic from the pre-existing uh, websites. But again, you know, that might be neither here nor there. Uh, you know, as it turns out, actually, Google's shopping service was never a great success. Uh, uh, and so, uh, you know, so it looks a bit suspicious. It's a, you know, it's a company with market power. We might say it has market power or not. Even that's debated. But certainly they're dominant in search. You know, they're preferencing themselves that might lead to some kind of anti-competitive consequences in the market. But this conduct went on for a while and it wasn't clear that it was having any kind of effects. Uh, uh, and so the question becomes, what do you do about it? Do you outlaw it? Do you not outlaw it? Uh, if you outlaw it, uh, you know, on what basis? What's the reason that you're outlawing it? Uh, what is it that you allow Google to do in the future if this is going to be a violation or not? Uh, and the whole thing, the litigation lasted years, I mean, at least five years, if not more. By the time that it was concluded, most of these websites were no longer even operative. So if our aim was to help those websites, well, by the time we finished the intervention, uh, you know, they were out of yeah, the picture business. anyway. <laughs> exactly. And so you see here that you have these two problems that I talk about. So the first is uncertainty, where you're not sure whether some conduct is problematic or not, whether it's going to have any negative effects. And the second is that you're actually, even if you think this is really problematic, by the time you implement it through a legal solution, it's just too late. The market is already somewhere else. So we're talking about this concept of experimentalism. And what you're moving to now is what you explain is that there are two necessary scope conditions for experimental governance. So one of those is uncertainty and one of those is the limits of hierarchical enforcement. So yes. again, that's by reference to that example of the Google case, could you just tell us about if we're looking at this idea that EU competition law can be governed by this particular concept of governments, the experimentalist one, 
how is it that those two conditions exist in the context of EU competition law? But whatever context you're looking at it in, you say there must be these two conditions, uncertainty and the limits of hierarchical enforcement. So, yeah, if you could just talk a little bit about those scope conditions in this context of, of competition law. Exactly. So I think that, you know, and it's actually quite useful to talk about it in the context of this example that I've mm. just elaborated, where, you know, you the uncertainty relates to, you know, you want to use competition law in order to achieve some positive outcomes in the market. You want, you know, low prices for consumers. You want, uh, you want good quality products. We might even say these days you want, uh, you know, digital products that don't end up uh, taking away too much of your data and your ability to control your data. Uh, but the problem is that you don't know either what types of conduct harm those objectives that you're trying to achieve. Or you don't know what kind of remedy you can implement in order to achieve the objectives that you are trying to achieve. So that's the problem of uncertainty. You are looking at this conduct and you're saying, well, is there self-preferencing? Does it have any negative effects on the market? If it does, how am I going to fix that? Okay. So you are, you as an enforcer, you have all of these types of uncertainty that you are facing about the conduct that you are uh, trying to um, uh, enforce against. And how will experimentalism assist with resolving those two issues? So experimentalism says, well, okay, so at the best of times, you are proceeding on some kind of a hypothesis about why this conduct of self-preferencing leads to some kind of harm. Uh, and so then experimentalism says, uh, rather than going and proceeding through the entire rigmarole of legal enforcement, which takes you through the courts and appeals and, you know, battling experts about, you know, whether this is good or bad and a judge that has to listen to all of these economists and people with expertise in technology and having to say this is good or bad. And I'll tell you, most judges most of the time have no idea. They will just say, well, I have seen enough evidence or I haven't seen enough evidence. And sometimes the evidence is just not there when you have to make the decision. It's uh, because, you know, you need to see how the comp the conduct evolves in order to have the evidence. And so the experimentalist approach is to say, okay, well, let's try some kind of a solution that maybe addresses uh, the concerns that these rival websites have expressed about self-preferencing. And we do it collaboratively. So, you know, Google in the particular example is, would be on board in uh, trying to kind of say, look, you know, let's try to find some kind of a solution that overcomes this problem. But we recognize that it's a solution which is temporary. It's not final. So uh, all of us are implementing a particular remedy, which we say might address the problem, but we're also monitoring the effects of the remedy. And so that's the recursive element. Yes. So that's the idea that actors within a system are expected to learn from their own experience and from the experience of others. Uh, yes, I was going to ask you to explain. So just a little bit more on what that what what that recursivity means. Is is that basically it, learning from experience? And doing it in a way which is, uh, you know, which is formalized uh, and which involves uh, the oversight of peers, 
Yes. Because one of the problems is most remedies in competition law, as in other areas of regulation, end up being implemented by a regulator vis-a-vis the entity that's being regulated, whether it's Telstra or Google or whatever. Um, And, you know, within that conversation, it's very, very easy for a regulator to become captured because they're constantly talking to the one entity That's the only perspective that they are hearing about constantly. And of course, the regulated entity will be saying, well, this is very burdensome. It doesn't have any effects, you know. So the important thing is here that it has to be recursive, but also overseen by peers, others who are affected by the conduct or others who are engaging in similar regulatory efforts elsewhere, who are basically observing the effects of the remedy that you have implemented in the specific market and saying, well, you know, you might need to tweak this. This might not be achieving the objectives that you had set out to achieve. So, Jana, you set out, you make it clear at the beginning of the book, I mean, what we're going to do is work through the, the different chapters. But you say at the beginning that your aim is to demonstrate that this concept of superstructure, if you like, of exper- experimentalism is both a desirable governance architecture and also a feasible one. So with that in mind, let's now go to look at some of the material in the particular chapters. So we're going to start with Chapter 1, which deals largely with the European Competition Network. So just to set a bit of background, in 2004, the EC initiated a set of institutional reforms as part of the modernisation package which came in when membership was extended to 10 new states. And you make the point that a very striking feature of those reforms was the decentralisation of the EC enforcement system. And just to put that in pretty simple terms, correct me if I've got that wrong, that as well as the Commission, national competition authorities, referred to as NCAs, were themselves empowered to directly enforce EU competition law as well as their own national competition law. What I want to ask you now, and we're going to come to talk with them about them in a bit more detail as we go through, but I wondered if you could just sort of summarise for us in the way that you do in this chapter, what were the main features of that 2004 modernisation package for the purposes of what we are looking at, namely whether this experimentalist framework is a good or appropriate, feasible or desirable form of governance? Okay, so in uh, in this uh, institutional modernization of European competition law, it occurred at the time when 10 new member states, most of them actually former socialist economies uh, uh, who had been on the other side of the Iron Curtain, joined the European Union. Uh, you know, these were economies that were in fact characterized by not being market economists, but being planned economies and which had where competition definitely was not part of the economic system, right? Uh, And so you have these countries joining uh, and they also have to be subject to uh, the the same rules as the as the old member states, as the as the market economies of Western Europe, uh, including competition law. And you know the one uh, way in which you could try to deal with the fact that there is all of these new countries that maybe don't know much about how to enforce competition is to try the Australian strategy. So to basically go to the rules and try to specify them in greater detail, okay, 
so that it becomes very clear what's legal, what's illegal. So you don't have to worry about these inexperienced countries that don't have much experience with market economy and competition, uh, uh, you know, having to be subjected by the same rules. Um, uh, and in fact, the uh, reforms involved no attempt whatsoever to specify in greater detail the rules. And almost counterintuitively, it says it's not just the European Commission as the former enforcement authority, which on behalf of the European Union was enforcing competition law for all of Europe before. No, we'll actually allow even the national authorities uh, to enforce competition law. So it looks totally counterintuitive. Uh, you know, if you're worried that you are, you have all of these new countries joining, a lot of them don't have any competition, you would expect to make the rules tighter, you know, so that everybody knows what's legal, what's illegal. None of that. And we even are going to say you can enforce competition law yourselves. EU competition at the law as well EU, as your national competition Exactly, law. exactly. Uh, and so I think that, you know, I mean, when I was originally uh, writing about this, it was back in 2010, you know, this somewhat kind of uh, odd uh, uh, decision uh, that was taken uh, was something that I found striking. Um, and, uh, you know, my own interpretation at the time was that now the same law had to apply in very, very different circumstances, uh, in very different national industry and market circumstances. And I think that the European Commission realized that there was no way in which you could kind of, you know, provide more detailed rules that would work in a one-size-fits-all way for everybody. Uh, and so what you needed to do is actually kind of like, you know, engender local enforcement, you know, sometimes by reference to particular circumstances in different member states. But, you know, you mutually observe each other, the different national authorities. So that's why the importance of the creation of a network, okay, where all of the authorities are sitting around a table regularly meeting and asking each other in, a, in quite a formal way, what kind of cases are you undertaking? What kind of remedies are you implementing? What what you're talking about, for listeners who aren't familiar with this, is one of the important things that was created was what's called the European Competition Network, the ECN. And the aim was to facilitate consultation between the European Commission and the NCAs. So I wondered if you could just tell us who makes up the ECN, what is it, and what is its role? What's the aim of that network? So the European Competition Network, as I would, uh, is one of many, uh, 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 sorry, regulatory networks that exist in the European Union in almost every field uh, of regulating markets, whether it's telecoms, energy, finance, they, there exist networks like this. And so the members are all of the national authorities that are responsible for uh, that specific regulatory task. So it's the uh, it's the national equivalence of authorities like our ACCC, our ASIC. Uh, you know, so they are national regulators, 
There is a network that unifies all of them and usually has a European, let's say, kind of like our uh, a federal actor also sitting. Uh, so and it's the commission as well, Yane. So with the in the competition network, yes, the commission is also a member as one of the authorities that enforces European competition law. Uh, and so the the idea of the network is that it's a formalized. Uh, um, let's say, body of some sort in which everybody gets together on a regular basis and has the opportunity to not only discuss as if it's a seminar, you know, what we're doing, and but also actually to discuss specific cases and to say, look, we are facing this specific problem. Most of the time, regulators say, if they're honest, we don't know what to do about it. Uh, and we are trying to uh, potentially maybe learn from somebody else who has tried to solve a similar problem about, you know, what it is that we could do based also maybe on the experience of whether, uh, you know, uh, the other authority was successful or not. Uh, in I, its I thought effort. it was really interesting that one of the obligations is that NCAs must actually inform each other via this network of new cases and envisaged enforcement decisions. So, they need to put the ECN on notice of what they're intending to do um, before they do it. Is that that seemed pretty innovative to me? Um, well, it is because uh, it's you know it's a way in which uh, you uh, you know you you get uh, to learn from your peers uh, in tasks that are very very difficult and where you don't actually necessarily have much guidance from anybody else. Uh, I mean, we have to remember most of these authorities are independent authorities like our ACCC, which means that they're not supposed to be getting direct instructions from politicians or from business about how they're to be solving cases. Uh, and so then you think, okay, well, who, who do they turn to? Uh, and so here the network says, well, you, can, uh, you need to inform us of what you're intending to do. Uh, mm -hmm and inform us of what you're planning to implement. And, you know, we might actually provide you with some input uh, about uh, your envisaged decision. Now, in Europe, this is very common in many, many different areas of regulation. And so you write about how the other ways that they help each other, they might coordinate investigations, they might exchange evidence, they discuss issues of common interest. And you then go on to consider this conceptual issue that you're grappling with in this book is whether the ECN is what you call a convergence network and specifically whether it impedes experimentalist learning or whether it promotes it. What's your answer to that? Um, well, I mean, you know, the answer is, uh, you know, my, my uh, sometimes the answer depends on kind of like, you know, which specific problems you're looking at. I think that the network has a lot of uh, potential uh, to uh, um, um, to create uh, the room for national authorities to be innovative in their enforcement and responsive to their local conditions rather than simply to be trying to copy each other, which mm. is the other thing that often happens in networks. You just say, well, you know, I don't know what to do, but, you know, the Germans did this, so, you know, maybe I'll just do the same. Uh, uh, and, you know, there is quite a bit of evidence from... Uh, 
empirical evidence from people who look at the decisions of the national authorities. And, you know, some of it is in the book, but there's a lot more also since the book was published, uh, which was about two years ago, that there is actually quite a lot of divergence between the national authorities in how they implement competition law in tough problems, okay, where it's not quite clear, uh, you know, how, uh, you know, what the optimal solution would be. Uh, There is divergence, but that divergence doesn't mean, at least I would argue, that, you know, everybody is doing their own thing and they're unable to understand each other and what they're doing. But, you know, it's everybody is basically tailoring common ideas to the specific problems that they're faced with. Uh, now, and is, that, course, is that consistent with an experimentalist absolutely. Uh, regime? Yeah. Absolutely. So long as there is peer review and your peers say, okay, that's not the same what the Germans did, but we can understand why you are doing it in a different way because the market in your specific circumstances is quite different. Okay, I mean, even if you think something... You've got one of the other things that you write about is that they've got common objectives, but they're dealing in different local environments and, and they're given the autonomy to work within their own environments and to adapt to their own local conditions. Exactly. I mean, even with things like, you know, online shopping, I mean, you know, in some countries, it's very profuse, and there are certain types of vehicles that are used for that in others, it's not. Uh, And so, you know, if you're going to have a concern, like the one that we discussed about Google shopping, Mm -hmm. it may be that you our intervention is going to be different, depending on what your kind of, you know, what your consumers practices are like you know what they actually do uh and there are many examples like you know even something like uh, you know let's think about an equivalent to the nbn in in australia uh, you know how do you invest in uh, a broadband network depending on population density uh, the pre-existing copper network uh, which is very very different whether you are uh, even within australia whether you're in remote western australia it's very different to what it would be like in sydney uh, whether you're in romania or bulgaria or whether you're in germany or the netherlands uh, the conditions are very different and so you may actually need to adopt different strategies even if ideally you are pursuing the same kinds of objectives Let's move now to Chapter 2, which deals with the choice of enforcement technique. Now, here you look at enforcement mechanisms that are used by both NCAs, National Competition Authorities, and at the EU level from an experimentalist governance perspective. And what you particularly you are considering is whether both of these or all of these enforcement agencies should move from a legalistic or rule enforcement approach to a more outcomes-oriented or problem-oriented approach where market practices are assessed by reference to their effects. I'd just like you to talk about what is the difference between those two approaches in the context of competition law? Yeah, well, that just goes back to what we were discussing at the beginning. Uh, you know, do you do you say I have rules and precedents that tell me what conduct is legal and what's illegal? And I just go after companies when they have infringed those rules or precedents uh, and try to, uh, you know, prosecute them for a violation in order to... So that's the legalistic approach? That's the legalistic approach, okay? Uh, The other is uh, the experimentalist approach, which says, well, you know, 
I mean, I'm observing some conduct. I have some concerns about it, but uh, I'm actually not entirely sure either whether it's problematic or not, let alone what its longer term effects in the market are going to be. Maybe there are some rivals uh, like the uh, shopping websites in the Google case that are complaining about it. So, uh, you know, instead of engaging the litigation mechanism, which is the legalistic approach in order to go after conduct that maybe you're not even sure is that problematic or not, what you say is, okay, well, is there some kind of a modification of your current business strategy that you can implement that addresses the possible concerns that are being raised about the competitive effects? Or maybe it even tests them. Uh, We say, look, you know, we will ask you to, in certain settings, stop this self-preferencing conduct. And in others, we might allow you to continue with it. Uh, And then we monitor what's happening in the markets with participation of, uh, you know, uh, other firms, of uh, consumer organizations that represent the consumer interest. Uh, And so we are observing whether the harm that we were worried about exists or not, is being corrected or not. Uh, And so... The recursive element is that, you know, our solution is provisional uh, and we are uh, going to monitor its effects uh, in order to decide whether maybe actually something more intrusive is needed. You write about the use of negotiated remedial settlements under Article 9 of the Modernisation Regulation. And I just wondered if you could explain what they are. Is that what you were just talking about? Is that an example? Uh, It just basically means that, I mean, also in the Australian context, there is an equivalent. It's called an undertaking under Mm -hmm. uh, Section 87B of the statute, where you directly negotiate with the ACCC uh, what remedial actions you're going to take uh, in uh, in order to fix the problem that has been identified, even before there has been any finding that you have, you know, violated the law or not. Uh, so in Europe, uh, the equivalent mechanism is called a commitment decision. So it means that you, it's like a contract between the regulated entity and the uh, regulator, where you say somewhere else, I think in your book you described as, or somewhere else I read that it's a bit like a consent agreement. Like yes, you, exactly. The, the party makes an agreement with the regulator, and then I'm assuming the regulator monitors that, monitors the implementation. Well, so under the standard conception of a settlement, that's usually what happens, right? We settle the case, and then the regulator monitors uh, to see whether you are sticking to what you promised. In the experimentalist world, uh, and this is what we observe in Europe, uh, is that it's not the regulator that just monitors and every now and then kind of, you know, uh, regulators are really busy and they're often understaffed. Uh, So, you know, what happens after the settlement is that most of the time it's put in a drawer uh, and, you know, maybe somebody thinks about this remedy at some point in the future, but maybe also not because it's case closed. Uh, So the experimentalist uh, approach doesn't allow you to close the case. It says, okay, we're going to implement the remedy and then we're going to have a monitor. And the monitor's task is to monitor the remedy, but not just him or herself, but actually through taking submissions and input, ongoing input from the rivals, from consumer organizations, from uh, businesses that the company is working with, 
in order to understand whether the remedy is working or not. And it's going to be making reports to the regulator, but those can also be public. Uh, and so that means that it's not allowing you to just basically say, okay, case closed, we've implemented some remedy. Most of the time in competition law, we have no idea whether the remedies have achieved any effect or not. Uh, and so this essentially forces you uh, to remain engaged with the problem. Let's talk now then about what you write about in Chapter 3, which is peer review. So peer review is regarded as a key element in experimentalist governance. Why is that? And how is peer review used in experimentalist governance? And we're talking in abstract terms now. Then we're going to come to talk about the EU context and the advisory committees. I mean, peer review is important for a few reasons. Uh, and I maybe fo- I'll focus on the two that I see as most important. Uh, one is uh, as an important mechanism to disrupt your habits of thought. Okay. So, you know, regulators, they are busy people. Uh, you know, there is, I mean, they can't know everything about the world around them. Uh, they often, they like precedents because they tell them, you know, what you're supposed to do in the new case based on kind of, you know, a case that you decided previously. Uh, but the more dynamic markets are, the less useful your previous experience is in dealing with the current problem. So, you know, I mean, if you think about, let's say, the Google Shopping case, you might say, well, you know, I'm probably not going to look at, you know, uh, the market for wheat in order to help me with this. Uh, it's probably not going to be a useful precedent. You might think about the Microsoft case, which was an important case uh, in the early 2000s, which also involved uh, information com- communications technology. But even there, you will see actually that the context is quite different in what lessons you can learn from that case uh, about how to specifically remedy the problem are limited. Okay, so you know, one reason that you want to discuss with peers uh, is that you just want to disrupt your tendency to just say, look, I'll just address the new problem in the same way that I addressed the last time that this came uh, to me. Uh, But then the second is this element of monitoring effects. So again, in the reality of uh, uh, the busy work of regulators and enforcers. Uh, A lot of the time it's important to, you know, to close a case, to say a remedy has been implemented, to uh, say, you know, it's been a win for us. Uh, These are all, there's nothing sinister about it. You know, we, we all want it in our work. We want finality. We want to be able to say that we've achieved something. Um, And uh, so, you know, the other, uh, uh, element that's really important is that there is this constant pressure to basically review what you have done to justify to people who are just as knowledgeable about the problem as you are uh, and to deal with their questions. But what about this? But what about that? But, you know, uh, um, and so the, you know, the recursivity becomes very difficult if it's a closed conversation. So the peer element Uh, is about, you know, having to justify your actions, explain them, 
and also uh, reveal the effects of your actions to uh, peers who are just as knowledgeable. Uh, and so that's uh, why in an experimentalist setting, the peer review element is a, a very, very important element. So let's talk about it now in the EU competition context. One way that peer review has been incorporated is via the advisory committee, which was established under the 2004 modernisation package. So I'd like you to tell us, first of all, what it is, who makes up that committee, and then next to tell us about what its functions are. Um, well, I mean, the, the, the advisory committee is, uh, um, you know, there are, there are various uh, um, functions that it plays. I mean, uh, it is, uh, uh, its main function uh, is to um, exercise oversight on decisions uh, by the commission, mm. uh, but also by the national authorities in implementation of competition law. So the uh, commission, so I mean, I found this a little bit surprising and tell me if I'm wrong, but the commission must actually obtain an opinion from the advisory committee prior to making an Article 7 violation or an Article 19 decision. Again, pretty innovative. Is that yeah, so it basically, uh, it basically says that before a regulatory authority is to take a decision, it has to consult its peers about, you know, what they think about this decision. And the peers, and, the advisory committee is made up of represent representatives of the national competition authorities. Exactly. Uh, and the thing is that in Europe, actually, uh, this mechanism exists throughout. It's not just in competition law, mm. in financial regulation, in telecoms, in energy. There are these peer bodies where before... Uh, the commission or before a national authority takes a decision, it sends the decision to its peers and says, this is what I'm thinking of doing. What do you think? Uh, but if I'm right in, am I right in saying it must get the opinion, but the advisory committee's opinion or decision is not binding. So it has to take it on board. It must refer it. It's got to take it on board, but it doesn't necessarily have to follow it. It's not bound by it. Exactly. And most of the time in uh, these peer review frameworks, uh, in Europe, the, the legal formulation is that you have to take utmost account of the opinion of the peer review body. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, it means that you can proceed to ignore it, but you have to justify why. Mm, okay? okay. So you say, I'm disagreeing with the advisory committee for these reasons. Okay. Um, uh, and so it does have some legal effect. It's mm. not a complete kind of, you know, just, oh, you know, uh, you know, it does then trigger an obligation to justify what you're doing again to your peers. But that, of course, uh, also is read by others. <laughs> and Yana, as you mentioned before, there are other examples of peer review mechanisms in the EU market regulation. You've talked about some of them in just now and in your book, um, in the field of energy, the regulation of electronic communications. Now, you argue that if you take all of these peer review mechanisms together, you could argue that they, in their combined form, do in fact form an experimentalist regime. Could you talk a bit about that? Um, well, uh, so there is there is a, a, a couple of uh issues there. So one is that, you know, most regulation these days is quite specialized. 
And so, uh, um, you know, a lot of the time, these regulatory networks are around a particular topic area, like the European Competition Network, like the body of electronic communications regulators, you know, they are basically formed around a specific topic area uh, that is uh, either uh, like competition law or a sector like telecoms or finance or whatever. Um, but one of the things that uh, um, we observe in uh, in many contemporary problems is that actually the same conduct can be affected by different regulatory regimes, or the same conduct is relevant to different regulatory regimes. So, you know, if we go back to something like, you know, the Google Shopping example, you know, there could there be uh, a consumer law uh, aspect to that, uh, because maybe you are deceiving consumers into thinking that, you know, your shopping website is the best one compared to that of others. Uh, there is a competition aspect to that, the effect that it has on rivals and the competitive process. There could be a data protection aspect as well, because a lot of free services basically are only free uh, because we don't pay for them with money, but we usually pay with our data to the provider. Uh, now, you know, uh, in uh, a lot of the time, there are specialist regulators that deal with each of these aspects individually. Okay, there is data protection, uh, which is one uh, regulator. Uh, competition can be another consumer can be another. In Australia, we have the Competition and Consumer Commission together, but in a lot of other countries, these are two separate bodies, okay? Um, and so sometimes when the uh, competition uh, regulator is looking at the, uh, the problem purely from a competition perspective, they might ignore that there is also a data protection perspective uh, in the problem as well, that there is a consumer law perspective as well. Uh, and so one of the points in that I'm trying to make in the book is the way in which these peer review frameworks uh, can create mechanisms to talk to each other uh, as a way of addressing some of these problems that are at the intersection of different specialist regulatory regimes. Uh, and that's actually something that usually it's very difficult. You know, in national regulation, there's very hierarchical conceptions. You know, this is competition law. The ACCC, for example, in Australia is responsible for it. The courts oversee it. There is actually not much scope for a discussion with some other uh, specialist regulator. Uh, and these peer review frameworks, at least in Europe, uh, uh, I, I try to show how they have created scope uh, and mechanisms through which to engage in dialogue with each other for these problems that are at the intersection uh, of uh, different specialist regulatory regimes. Let's talk now about chapter four, uh, where you write about the courts. And you make the point that the courts at both the EU and the national level have two roles in relation to competition law. One is a public role, and that's the judicial review of decisions of the Commission, and one is a private role, and that is antitrust litigation for civil damages. And in this chapter, Chapter 4, you look at how courts performing those roles can either support experimentalism or they can undermine it. Let's look at the first of those. How can courts support experimentalist solutions? 
Um, so the role of courts is very important, uh, at least in those jurisdictions uh, like, uh, you know, uh, the European Union, where the rule of law is one of the fundamental uh, values of the European Union, uh, and similarly also in a country like Australia. And, and part of that, uh, you know, part of the conception of the rule of law is that there are rules that outline what you're allowed and not allowed to do, okay? Uh, and, uh, you know, you are advised by, uh, you know, your lawyers uh, and, uh, you know, you, you know what the law is and you know at which point you basically overstep the line and commit a violation. And the protection of the rule of law, often we think of the courts as the protection of the rule of law because, you know, they're the ones who make the authoritative declaration of what the law means and when you have overstepped the mark. Now, if you think about the experimentalist uh, interventions that we were discussing earlier, they basically say, no, actually, we don't quite know uh, what you're allowed and what you're not allowed to do. Uh, you are allowed to do things that have good effects in the market and you're not allowed to do things that don't. Uh, we can't tell you, we can't give you a bright line of when you have committed a violation or not. Um, and uh, if, uh, you know, what we can do is we can work with you to, you know, make sure that uh, in a recursive way we are solving uh, uh, the problems, uh, remedying the problems that are being revealed by your conduct. Now, for for people who believe in the rule of law, this can be very, 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 a very kind of, uh, um, let's say, uh, disquieting mode of intervention because it seems to give a lot of uh, uh, discretion to the authority about when it intervenes and when it doesn't and how it intervenes. Uh, and then there's also a concern if the authority is just talking to the, uh, to the corporation that's subject to the law, that it becomes captured by them. Uh, and where is the court that basically tells us that the authority has overstepped the mark or not? Um, uh, and so, uh, you know, that's uh, the reason why there is the chapter on courts. And uh, what, uh, um, you know, um, what I'm, I'm, I'm trying to argue is to answer your question, you know, if the courts have the conception that they are the only source of authoritative interpretation of the law, uh, where they are the ones that have to say, have to have the, have to have the final say, on whether the law has been violated or not, uh, uh, that becomes very, very difficult for an experimentalist system to uh, to to be set in place because, uh, you know, the experimentalist system in a way depends on there not being a finality to the solution, but that the solution is recursively uh, developed by the parties participating in the remedial exercise. Uh, so I think that, you know, if you take Australia as an example where we have a statute that's very prescriptive and the courts have the function of giving the final word on what the statute means in a particular case, uh, it becomes quite difficult, at least through litigation, to implement experimentalist solutions. You might you must look for other ways to do it, as the ACCC and other authorities are doing. Uh, the alternative conception is that the court says, Look, I will suspend judgment on uh, what, uh, you know, exactly the law requires in this particular case. 
so long as you create what I would call an experimentalist regime, uh, which is that you implement a remedy, you make sure that that remedy is subject to monitoring uh, through input uh, from uh, all of the parties who are affected uh, by the conduct and by the remedy, uh, and you make public the effects of the remedy that you have implemented and you subject those uh, to review of knowledgeable peers. Uh, so long as you create that kind of a regime, I will suspend judgment on whether this uh, conduct was uh, legal or not. Uh, and, you know, what I try to do is that courts, even when they seem to be acting in a traditional way, they can create that sort of space for parties to do this type of experimentation uh, in order to uh, solve the problem and to to support uh, that kind of collaborative remedial exercise. Let's go then to the conclusion, Yane. You say that there are um, two objects in in your book. The first is to show how a number of developments in EU competition law are consistent with an experimentalist governance framework. And then you'd say more ambitiously to consider whether this framework is one, normatively desirable and two, feasible. And I'd like to really, I've got one more question after that, but I'd like you just to address each of those. Is an experimentalist dealing with the first? Is an experimentalist governance framework normatively desirable, do you think? Um, I Well, I, I suppose you won't be surprised to, uh, to know that I think that it is. Uh, and uh, in part, it actually draws on my experience. You know, I'm, I'm a socio-legal researcher, which means that I do a lot of empirical research, which involves interviewing and talking to uh, uh, regulators, uh, even judges, if that's, uh, you know, if they're willing to talk to you. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, from, from those conversations, uh, I have, you know, they are the, 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 the impetus that led me to think, well, maybe we need to, we need to think whether this experimentalist model is applicable in this context. And it's precisely goes to the fact that, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the regulators, the enforcers, most of the time they, uh, they face considerable uncertainty in addressing uh, conduct. They're not sure what kind of remedies to implement. Uh, and a lot of the time they feel that they need to hide that uncertainty because it makes them look incompetent. Uh, you know, if you are the head of the ACCC and you say, look, you know, there is this problem. And to be perfectly honest with you, <laughs> I don't really know how much of a problem this is. Uh, um, you know, I'm punting a little bit and I would like to try this kind of remedy and, you know, see what happens. Uh, in our traditional conception, that would be a sign of weakness and incompetence. Uh, but actually in private, most regulators are pretty open that this is uh, the reality that they are facing. Uh, and so the reason I think experimentalism is desirable is because it allows regulators to be open about the uncertainties that they are facing. Uh, but at the same time, it doesn't say, well, you know, just go and do trial and error or kind of like, you know, flip a coin. It provides a structured uh, framework within which they can try to 
improve their decisions, even when they're acting uh, with uncertainty. So that's why I think it's desirable. So let's come to the second limb. Is it feasible? So again, I think it's feasible. I think that, uh, you know, what I try to do in the book is, I mean, I don't think that a lot of uh, regulators, at least when I'm talking to them, are actively thinking about experimentalism. What's the model? You know, they're basically saying, look, I've got a problem to solve. You know, how do I find a workaround of some sorts that allows me to solve the problem? And so what I'm trying to do in the book is to kind of, I say, I try to kind of hold a mirror to the regulators and to say, look, you know, look at what you're doing. I have an interpretation of what it is that you're doing. It has a lot of the hallmarks of this governance architecture. Uh, And if you acknowledge that, uh, you might actually do what you're doing even better. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that's the, uh, the, the reason why I say that it's feasible because I'm saying you're, you're most of the time you're almost doing it. Mm -hmm. You say it just needs a bit of tweaking. Exactly. It just needs a recognition that that's the exercise that you're involved in. And then uh, maybe some tweaking in order to uh, fully realize the potential of what you're doing. Yana, final question, which relates to something that you and I discussed in an email exchange. I just thought it would be helpful for you to tell listeners how your research and, and what you've explored in this book is relevant for current debates in Australia about competition law. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's very very relevant, uh, and I have even uh, you know made a, a submission to the current uh, consultations by the ACCC, uh, and I'm planning to do one to the the ongoing process in the Treasury. Uh, I, I think that uh, uh, you know uh, one of the I mean in Australia you know we have very very competent regulators we have had also very uh, you know innovative techniques for enforcement so you know the commitment which we talk about uh, as uh, uh, in the book is a European example uh, actually that mode of resolution was uh, already present in Australia before the Europeans adopted it Mm -hmm. through the undertaking. So uh, we also have had, uh, you know, uh, very, very prominent theorists of of regulation, like the responsive regulation theorists, which have really, uh, you know, had an international impact. And they've also, you know, uh, impacted how our authorities uh, implement uh, uh, market regulation. But I think that, you know, we are stuck uh, with, uh, you know, an enforcement model through a very, very prescriptive uh, statute and courts that often, you know, not because they are not friendly to competition law, but because, you know, when they look at the text, when they look at the evidence in the context of high uncertainty, dynamic markets where you're actually not sure whether things are going to have one effect or another, basically say, well, no, here you haven't demonstrated the evidence that there is a violation. And that really blunts the effect, the effectiveness of our competition law. Uh, And so, uh, you know, I think that we already, a little bit like what I do in the book, I say we already have a lot of the the component parts uh, that could uh, um, um, put together an assemblage of experimentalism. Uh, But I think that that needs to be a very, very conscious exercise of reconceptualizing what the role of the enforcer is. I think that we have wanted the ACCC to kind of be an authority that, you know, comes down hard and kind of, you know, uh, prosecutes uh, conduct which violates competition law. Uh, Actually, uh, you know, 
they haven't been very, very successful. A lot of the cases that they have brought over the years have failed. Uh, and it's just because of, I would say, because of the inherent limits of the legalistic of model. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that uh, the book has a lot of potential. There was even a discussion after its publication involving, uh, you know, some private practitioners and a, a representative from the ACCC. Uh, so I think that, you know, there is there is room, uh, but I would like that to be an ongoing conversation. And I hope that uh, our conversation today will contribute to that. Yeah, no, thank you so much for speaking to me. It's uh, It's been terrific to hear you talk about this incredibly stimulating and thought provoking uh, subject matter and your excellent book. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Nicole. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabberdy.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbey, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon. Thank you.